Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one sonic page of Tomlet each day. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of fascinating pages that we read in the Talmud. But today, Kiddushin 21 or 22 delivered one of the truly kind of most stirring, most moving, most meaningful passages that I could remember in a very long time. Have a listen. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai would expound this verse as a type of decorative wreath, chomer, i.e. as an allegory. Why is the ear different from all the other limbs in the body? As the ear alone is pierced. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is asking, why is it that when a slave finishes serving his term and wishes to remain in his master's employ, he is then taken and has his ear pierced? That is a strange kind of biblical ceremony. He asks, why is that the case? Why is the ear pierced? What's the symbolism of the ear? He answers, the Holy One, blessed be he, said, This ear heard my voice on Mount Sinai when I said, For to me the children of Israel are slaves, Leviticus 25.55, which indicates, and they should not be slaves to slaves. And yet this man went and willingly acquired a master for himself. Therefore, let his ear be pierced. In other words, if someone who knows the words of the Torah, who knows that the only one that we truly serve is Hashem, is God, then went and said, hey man, yes, I know, now is the time, I've done my duty, I've done my seven years, now I'm set free, but I wish to continue and remain a servant of another human being, let that person's ear be pierced because that person did not truly hear the commandment of the Lord. It made me think about so many things, but most stirringly, the notion of, of what hearing really does. Now, this here is a podcast. Uh, we, we make our living talking and hearing and listening to stuff, but I think it goes beyond that. I mean, there is a reason, for example, why in the old Beit HaMikdash, in the old temple, the only class of artisans uh, on hand weren't sculptors or painters or writers or even poets, but musicians. There's an understanding that music uplifts us, which is why when we're depressed, when we're sad, when we had a bad day at work, when we broke up with our boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, the thing that we do is go to our room and turn off all the lights and listen to our favorite music. So here, to help us make sense of the spiritual capacity of music and listening and audio to move us, could we talk to any other person, really, for this question? Our very own producer, Mr. Josh Cross, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Liel. Now, Josh, I'm, I've just gone on a really long rant here. Am I totally crazy? I mean, is there truly something spiritual about audio? Absolutely. I would say that most people will tell you stories the, of the Proustian way that smell will kick back to places in memory. I would argue that I have far more memories that I can trigger with a specific sound or remembering hearing a specific thing that I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard some podcast or some song for the first time, because I truly believe that sound is first and foremost, the most important sense that we carry. Okay. Stop right there. I'm not going to let you just, you know, slide on that. Not first and foremost. Let's, let's stop and unpack that. I totally agree with you. Yet, if you ask me to explain, I don't know that I'll be able to tell me, tell me how. Sound can actually replace, I think, the other primary sense that I think we all derive everything from vision. 
I think more than we can go the other way. If you've ever seen the stories of like the kid who taught himself to echolocate like dolphins and bats mm -hmm. do. Or if you've ever played Marco Polo. Exactly. And sound is something that undergirds almost everything else we sense. Whether it is you hear the sizzle of the steak that you're cooking and can already know the smell and what's coming. It communicates things about what you're doing. And knock on wood, I never go deaf or blind. But if I had to pick one, I think I'll lose my sight. Um, there is so much more import that comes and things that are communicated by just listening, whether it's hearing from around the corner that your dog is coming down the hall or that song that hits you the right way when you've gone to your first live show in forever or whatever. Sound really is the way that gives us the most direct conduit to the brain without even translating. What you see has to be translated by your brain. The vibrations that come into your ear and go off your eardrum directly into your brain. And so the rabbis aren't crazy for saying, hey, look, you know, we, you know, ears are pierced because we do see a, a real spiritual correlation, not just between, you know, our hearing and our emotion, but really our, our hearing and our soul, the thing that actually uplifts us and carries us and makes us want to be better people is, you know, very intricately tied to the notion of sound. Absolutely. We don't say see, O Israel. We say hear, O Israel. Baruch Hashem. So let's uh, hear, O listeners of this podcast, something to take us out on, a, um, on an uplifting spiritual note. Tell us, what are we going to play right now? For, 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 for those who listen to our sister podcast, Unorthodox as well, you'll know that we've recently done a series for Elul where one of these we actually went and looked directly at music. So it's a little taste of what is stored in the National Library of Israel of the liturgical music of far-flung communities around the world. Have a listen. Thank you so much for being our guest. We have uh, this, um, what we call in Hebrew, Hanaleid Balbela. It's a Hasidic tune. It's a Ladino song. It's a Greek tune. It's a Bulgarian tune. It's a jazz tune. You know, music moves. I'm Leah Leibowitz, and welcome back to the Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. I will, again, be guiding you across history and the globe through this library's amazing collection. That wonderful voice you heard, humming one of my favorite childhood tunes, Chanaleid Balbela, was Dr. Gila Flam. She's been with the National Library of Israel for over 30 years and heads the music department and sound archive. Up until now in the series, as Jews, people of the book, you know, the work we've heard about makes sense. It's about what's been written down. Maintaining Rambam's manuscripts or Gandhi's letters or even Sir Isaac Newton's scribbled Hebrew about the end of days. But as Jews, we've got a pretty important oral tradition as well. 
I mean, the Talmud is just a written version of Jewish oral law passed down for generations until some rabbis decided to preserve it. Kind of like librarians do. Dr. Flum comes right out of this oral tradition. As an ethnomusicologist, she records lost dialects and maintains obscure musical manuscripts and helms the most important Jewish and Israeli music collection in the entire world. Or as she sees it, she and her department just try to help tell the story of music. And so I asked her, how does the library tell the particular story of Jewish and Israeli music? What you find here is a mosaic. Not complete, exactly like you find in uh, archaeological uh, diggings. You can imagine that has more to it or has less to it of voices of people who not always were aware to what they have, but when you listen to it and when you analyze it, you know that it holds a system of sounds that express beliefs, religion, personality, and emotions. I think we have wonderful recordings of Iraqi Jews from the 1950s. Yemenite Jews, which some recordings I really like. And in Ashkenazic music, we have few cantors and Yiddish folk singers that really still excite me. We have some beautiful recordings of Italian Jews that you can hear opera through uh, liturgical music. Which is also very exciting and uh, also, I would say, beautiful. In one little tune, or ten little tunes, of a person who came from a very small village in Kurdistan or in Morocco, or in Poland, or in Russia. It's a whole world which lies on a very long history. And unfortunately, because the history of the Jews is very spread and very disrupted by migration, by Shoah, by all other atrocities. It's like the ongoing Jewish history is in the music. Because you don't need a land, you don't need a place, you don't need a pencil, you don't need a paper, you don't need color, you need nothing to create music and to preserve music and to preserve tradition. So outside these diverse musical traditions, the thing about a lot of these Jewish tunes, like, say, Chanaleit Balbela that you heard at the beginning, is that they're found in so many different communities across the world. And so I asked Dr. Flam, how do you know which is the true, real, first version, the OG that all others are copying? You know, you can have all kinds of theories, who was first or who came later, but I had a teacher of Arabic music. He said, you learn by osmosis. 
you don't even know how it happens and it's yours. You know, the one who sings it in Hebrew thinks it's a Hebrew folk song and the one who sings it in uh, Greek thinks it's a Greek folk song. And this is why when we do these interviews that people speak to us about their tunes, it's very interesting. It's a whole myth. I can ask you to sing something. They said, I learned it from my great-grandfather who gave it to my great-grandfather and gave it to my father. And definitely it's the tune of our family. No other family sings this Mirot Shabbat like we do. from this little place in Czechoslovakia and it went from generation to generation orally. And then a scholar will come and say, wow, it's the same tune that they sing in, in, in Czechoslovakia, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because your story, the myth that attached to the music is meaningful. So this is the greatness in music. When you live in a culture, one of the few things that you can get subconsciously is music. Music belongs to everyone. So Dr. Flom's job, as she's described it up until now, is quite important. Take Jewish musical and liturgical traditions near and far flung and organize and preserve them as a sliver of history. But something changed for the music archive around the year 2000. An Israeli law passed mandating that they have to archive every single piece of music that is ever released in Israel. I sense that you're not satisfied with this arrangement. No, I'm, I'm not. Okay. I'm a citizen that obey law most, most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> so we have to obey the law. The thing is that this has changed the priority to popular music first and ethnographic and art music second. And with this, I'm very unhappy. And I think you should first create and curate the pearls and later the silver and the simple stones. And as in any area, but especially in the Judita area, there are so many songs that nobody would ever listen to. I don't say we don't have to keep them but we don't really have to invest a lot of cataloging. If your son has a bar mitzvah, for example, and you want to make him a present, you can take him to a studio and have him record a song, right? If you keep it in the family, it's fine. But if you put it on the web or you put it on a platform of commercial music, then we have to keep it. I'm not saying it's not important. And maybe he he has a wonderful voice and he sang a beautiful song about his father and his mother and his sister and his brother. But I think from this material, we can have a sample. I'm not saying we shouldn't curate it at all because it's culture and it reflects the culture of today. But if we have a person who is like 90 years old and he had a special tradition, we have to make an effort. I have now a request of uh, Ethiopians that they have a language that is going to disappear, a gas language that only the priests know, and they really want to preserve it. And they are begging me to come and record and come and record, and I don't have the means. I think this is more important than to archive 50 bar mitzvah boys who sang a song in a studio. 
Dr. Flom explained that while this new legal situation does irk her a little bit, the shift towards digital music has made archiving every last song somewhat easier. She told me about the technology's unseen benefits, like how remote communities all around the world now have simple tools like even just a cell phone for preserving their sounds, their culture, their stories. And yet, something still bugged me. Because with this huge glut of digital technology pervading every aspect of our life, like when everyone has access to everything, isn't the risk that all of these distinct traditions start to change and maybe even start to sound the same? It's changing, but it has already changed. Before the digital area, it also changed because of demographic, because of uh, geographics, because of all kinds of... Because Jews are Navanadniks, you know, they, they go from here to there. In Israel, there was a strong influence, especially in the early years of Hebrew and of Hebrew folk song. We call invented tradition of the Israeli folk song into the synagogue. For many years already, you can go to a synagogue and every congregation sings Lechad uh, Odin, a different melody. One sings it on Yerushalayim Shazav, one sings it on... Uh, Hallelujah, Berlin. Come on. By Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, but some sing Shira Ma'alot with Hallelujah of Leonard Cohen, etc., etc. So the flexibility is in the tradition. And already now we talk about mainly three main traditions, Faradi Yerushalmi, Ashkenazi, which is more Eastern Ashkenazi, all the Western Ashkenazi in Israel disappeared. Maybe they are still where you live in Upper West Side, maybe some old Yekes communities that sing Frankfurt tradition. If you know, tell me and uh, Yemenites, that they kept their own uh, tradition. So already the Italian music almost disappeared. Greek liturgical music almost disappeared. Moroccans, here and there, there were different traditions from Morocco, Algeria, Libya, etc. So many, many traditions that already disappeared. And therefore, we have the manuscripts of these traditions in our recordings. And music changes. There's nothing you can do. Music changes, and it's built in in music. If you go to a synagogue, you enter and tell me what you hear. And you can see that you have different sounds and you have different traditions. And it's not all the same. Yet. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe our grandchildren will listen to the same tefillah all over Israel and all over America and will have peace. I'm Leah Leibowitz, signing off from the National Library of Israel. Until next time.
This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, please go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts and get your Take One t-shirts and mugs at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Rusquet, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnik, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one. Subscribe to our newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter or email us at take one at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at take one dafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic.